Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. Together we make feminine chaos. Hello. Hello, and happy April Fool's Day. I hope you're being exceedingly foolish. I mean, the, the fool is that by the time anybody listens to this, it won't be April Fool's Day anymore. Um, no. But in the meantime, Phoebe, please don't prank me while we're on this chat. Um, right. Surprise, I'm in the room with you. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, I already knew that. <laughs> You're not that sneaky. No. Um, so before we get to today, we are, um, we actually are talking about the royal family again. Um, but before we talk about the royal family, um, in today's context, I also have to make a royal correction from our last public episode. Um, we were talking about Diana princess of Wales, I said that she was landed gentry, which I thought was correct. But one of our listeners got in touch and and said, no, this is not correct. Um, So this is the correction. Diana was not landed gentry. I tried actually to research the Spencer family so that I could really fully correct the record. Um, But it turns out that no matter how much I read, I still cannot entirely understand how British nobility standards work. Um, So According to Wikipedia, the Spencer family started as landed gentry and later became a noble family. Hmm. And um, that's about the best I can do. I was wrong about this, which, you know, I'm very sorry. Um, I don't really understand entirely how I got it wrong, so I may get it wrong again. I can't promise to do better, but I apologize. Can you be landed gentry if there's a mortgage? That's a good question. If so, you and I are both landed gentry. Yeah, I feel like this is landed, but not gentry, maybe. Yeah, more landed, less I feel like gentry. I've landed somewhere, but I don't <laughs> think it's on gentry. Um, until until this house has a second, at least half bathroom, I don't think gentry quite quite covers it. Is that how they, is that how they assign like That's the different levels? That's how it's levels? assigned in Canada, actually. It's just, it's by bathrooms. Right, so like... If you have one and a half bathrooms, you can be gentry. If you have two mm-hmm. bathrooms, you can be nobility. nobility. Mm-hmm. If you have 15 bathrooms, you're king of Canada. That's how your politics work, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. And you live in some kind of bubble where it, it only snows if you want it to. Oh, that sounds like a lot of control. I think so. But you still wouldn't have a vaccine, but <laughs> um, otherwise you'd be all set. Um, yeah, so we are going to talk about royals, though, um, because Kat wrote a great piece um, for The Spectator about Prince William, and it's illustrated by a very dashing photo of a young Prince William. Quite fetching. His his hair a little bit mussed up, I guess would be the- Tousled, sort of, yes. Tousled, right, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really like- just to talk about the picture for a second, because I know that's not the substance of your piece and we will talk about the substance of your piece, but um, it really, I feel like it kind of worked to have this picture because what you'd talk about is how Prince William was kind of sold to then young girls of our generation. And though that's what he looked like when people were trying to make Prince William, as you say, like make Prince William is hot happen. Yes, this um, was this was the fetch they were trying to make happen. That was that the Prince William he, who was yes. packaged for us, you know, and for I our. Think, consumption. I think when he when he was that at that life stage, as these things went, I guess um, I don't know. Was he hot ever, or did he lose his hair and thus his 
his animal magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> his one his one beauty, as uh, as Louisa May Alcott would say. Oh, mm-hmm. William, you're one beauty. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I have to say he does, I, I fully admit, and I, you know, it's weird because I'm not sure how old he is in this photo. I hope, I hope over 18. <laughs> well, I've decided that this is not, like, I do not, I, I'm just going to say, I do not look at that picture of Prince William and think, good looking man i look at that prince william photo and think that is what was presented to me as a girl of a boy who i was supposed to think was cute basically yeah he looks like he he's like tiger beat pinup territory exactly. in exactly. in that picture um so yeah i i do i do kind of feel as though whoever decided to choose that picture was distinctly and explicitly trying to undermine the thesis of my <laughs> essay. Some editor at The Spectator was really out to get me on this one. I don't know. We're just getting people to click because like <laughs> a, a come hither Prince William is a little more click. Click worthy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely aesthetically, it makes the package better um, uh-huh. to have the, the, pretty prince at the top and he does yeah you know that was sort of like I I wonder about it it looks like a photo shoot it looks like you know like like he was interviewed by a teen magazine and Mm -hmm. he's like he's about to answer the ultimate boyfriend questionnaire in this photo absolutely he's sort of he's got sort of rosy cheeks that ruddy schoolboy thing but um he doesn't look like that anymore. And um, the reason that I wanted to write about this is there was this viral tweet and it declared that a Google study had found that William was the world's sexiest <laughs> bald man. Um, I want to make seems like something that would be about like George Costanza. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> what a concept. What a concept. I mean, Okay, actually, a tangent. I I recently learned that George Costanza, Jason Alexander, his name was escaping me for a second, was about the same age on Seinfeld as I am now, and um, I had no, to lie such, down. Such things are illegal. That can't be. <laughs> but right, uh, we were talking about we were talking about Prince William and his baldness, who may or may not have been scientifically proven. Yeah. Let's just say the uh, methodology of this research was not entirely rigorous. And there actually is a, a good um, tweet thread that we'll leave in the show notes sort mm-hmm. of explaining how this study, this so-called study came to you know make its way onto the internet and, and cause a reign of viral terror for a day or so. But suffice to say, the punchline is that the study was commissioned by a hair plug company. So yes, so it's not even about making men feel better about baldness, which yeah. is just like what a thing, what a Almost thing. Almost as that, though it was intended oh. to do the opposite, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's it's very convoluted. But then there was one part of that thread that really jumped out at me, um, and I believe I may have retweeted it because it was just too much. Was that if you, but was <laughs> it was like it was put in these very sort of staid scientific terms, but it was something like that. Yes, there are a lot of searches that have Prince William and sexy in them, but that if you put it a quote search um, for the exact phrase, Prince William is sexy, you get one result. (laughs) (laughs) was the saddest thing I'd ever heard. That is truly, that is truly sad. I'm sure more than one person, it only takes one in this world, you only need one person to think you're sexy, but 
I'm sure there are at least two people um, or 1.5, um, like with toilets. Um, I'm sure there are some people who think Prince William is sexy. And I'm going to just stand by that. I think he's the better looking of the two boys, men, he, whatever. He the absolutely brothers. is. He I is. Think he, I, hair or no hair, I think he's the preferable. Um, I was going to say twin. They're not even twins. I think he's the preferable. Um, my dog seems Chicken. <laughs> It was Bizu, but I think she's probably thinking about chicken, but um, <laughs> she has strong feelings about the princes. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess as they go, but yeah. So, so why is it, Kat, that people think that they have to call Prince William sexy? Well, this strange thing has happened, um, and and I think it does date back to this attempt to kind of package him as a sex symbol for, um, I mean, specifically for American teens. I guess English girls didn't need any help with this, but um, of course he was the prince, and so maybe he seemed more available to them. But I'm sort of struck by this idea that like we're trying to make fetch happen with the sexy William thing as though it's not enough for you to desire him because he's you know reasonably good looking and also royalty that you know like the truly worthy woman would would think that he was hot like objectively and fundamentally and without caring about the prince thing um almost like I don't know. It it just it strikes me as a lot of responsibility um, to be putting on the women of the world to kind of like coddle the feelings of the royalty and be like, oh, no, you're objectively sexy. Um, like it should be enough to be desirable because you're a prince. You don't you shouldn't need to be told that you're sexy when you're not really that sexy. That makes sense. And I think, yeah, I, I knew what you meant when you were talking about like the whole when how it fits with like the whole um Megan claiming that she'd never Googled mm-hmm. Harry. It's like, you don't have to have Googled him to know that he's the friggin' prince. You know what I mean? Like this is, but it's also like, wasn't it always with the women who were with the Beatles or at least with Yoko Ono, something like that. They didn't even know who the Beatles were. And it's like literally like everybody, including the people on like Sentinel Island, which I used to, which was a story I was very obsessed with at the time. Anyway, <laughs> um, people in very remote places knew all about the Beatles. I'm just going to say, um, well, maybe not quite there, but like everybody knew about the Beatles. Everybody knows about the Royal family. Like you cannot. And I think that's sort of the drawback, right? Like if you are that famous, you will never meet somebody who doesn't know this about you. And that's just it. That's the trade off. And it's unfortunate because if you are born into it, it's not your trade off to make like Prince Harry can, or William or whatever, whichever prince could decide, like, that's it. They're giving up all material possessions, blah, blah, blah. But which not, not that they're exactly doing that, but um, they're still born into that status and they can't really change it. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they didn't seek it out. So that is where I I wouldn't say that I feel bad for them. I do feel bad for uh, Prince William about the one hit for that. He's sexy. But I don't know, but it is weird, like where I wonder where this fits in with shallowness, though, because I think there is this expectation that like women should like men for who they are as people in some way. Whereas I don't think it's like I don't think there's an equivalent expectation that men should like women for who they are as people. Like, I think it's understood that men have, you know, superficial interests also not that they don't like women as people but you know well I think maybe there's like the the kind of the tension between oh you know he's only with her because she's beautiful she's only with him for his money like that's exactly sort of where... exactly so maybe it's that a, a woman who is with 
a prince for his looks is like paradoxically, I don't know if that's paradoxically, but is somehow less shallow than a woman who's with a prince. Or she's, she's shallow in a masculine way. She's like, she's masculine shallow instead of feminine chaos. Yeah. I don't know about this. I generally speaking, whenever there are these like sexiest man things, I feel like it doesn't work for like a couple of different reasons. Um, So one is that it always seems like the selection has to do with something very like transparently PR, you know, it never seems like this would be the person who would be any, anybody's consensus pick, but it also seems like a little hard to even have a consensus pick because I think for reasons that are probably cultural to some extent, straight female desire just isn't quite as like consensus it doesn't lend itself so much to a consensus um in general and um and there's even like an amazing line about this from keeping up appearances the 1990s Britcom where this woman is talking about how the um how the men in romance novels are always like tall and handsome and that they're never uh short and fat and she's saying that she says something about like this doesn't get it like the strange types we women actually find attractive. And you see her next to her, like very um, undershirt wearing slovenly husband who she finds irresistible on the show. But yeah, but I think there is something to that. Not that women don't care about looks. I'm very like adamant that women care about looks for like about the looks of the men they're with or considering being with, but it, it's not necessarily needing the men to look a way other women or other people generally would find attractive. It's a little more subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's um, maybe where some of this enters into it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that the sexiest man is like, who's that going to be like, aside from these things with like height and to some extent, although I don't know if this is quite as much of a thing, though I guess ask the hair plug people um, hair there really aren't that many sort of like who would be the man every single woman thinks is attractive. Whereas I feel like there are certain women where I would just think, okay, there's not going to be a man who likes women who doesn't at least find this woman somewhat attractive. I don't know. You know, I wonder about that because what's, what's just occurred to me is for instance, like the ongoing war between team Jen Psaki is hot and team Kaylee McEnany was hot. Like, you know, just to compare the press secretaries. And um, this is a legitimate cultural battle. It's a very important discussion that I think does actually come down to the fact that, I mean, there may be slightly more chance of finding a universal ideal of hotness for men, I guess, possibly. But I think that men kind of err on the side of different types in the same way that women do. I mean, it's at least that discussion certainly makes it seem that way. Well, sure. I mean, I think in terms of types, yeah, I guess I just mean like a young woman with like a sort of thin but curvy body and like a reasonably pretty face that's just going to be kind of will like register in some sort of culture. Like there's just more of this kind of cultural space of a certain type of person getting equated with hotness. Whereas I think with men, it's just, there are just too many distractions because a lot of men who would kind of tick a lot of boxes would read in a cultural context more as gay, which would then sort of prevent them from being 
in the kind of heartthrob for women category. Not all. It just means certain ones. I'm just thinking of like, I'm thinking of, you know, not necessarily a gay vibe, but maybe a more of a vintage vibe. And I'm thinking of, for instance, like John Hamm and Cary Grant, who Mm -hmm. I wonder if there is anybody out there who doesn't, for whom they don't at least register as appealing. But, you know, even if, if not necessarily your personal cup of tea. What if they are my personal cup of tea? Are John Hamm and Cary Grant serving oh. you tea as we speak? Um, yeah, actually, one from each side. That is how it, seems, it goes. Seems a little greedy. I'd <laughs> also possibly incredibly euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that was not intentional? Um, but what I was going to say about this is also just like, I mean, so I admittedly tweeted about this because I thought it was just too ridiculous, but I was reminded of this by, there are all these Uber Eats ads, at least I have these on Twitter, um, that are with Wayne's World, you know? Uh-huh. Do you know what I'm talking about with these ads? Uh, yes, I think I have seen You've one. You've seen these ads? Okay. So it brought back to me a memory from like, like real, we're talking Proustian, Madeline type stuff. <laughs> where, um, I know that's like a motif on our podcast, but whatever. We have to like talk about anything's a little Proustian. This is very Proustian. And I remembered being at summer camp when I was, I think, I was either eight or nine years old, and there was a poster up in the in this I was say dorm. That's not right. Cabin. Um, so it was sleepaway camp. It was my first time at sleepaway camp, and there was a poster up of Wayne's World. And I remember finding Garth from Wayne's World very attractive. Okay, so just, that is just, something. You're just gonna bear with me here. I hope I hope he hears this, girl. <laughs> That's that's literally the only reason I'm sharing this now, is so that Garth from Wayne's World, who I definitely um, realize is not a real person. Anyway, and I remember being at this camp, and it was the girls at this camp, who at least were dominating the social scene, were, um, they thought I was really weird, because my clothing didn't match. Um, I was not, and still am not, an observant Jew, which um, is a Jewish summer camp. So they thought that meant that I was Christian, which would have been, of course, the end of the world in this context amongst uh, eight or nine-year-olds. But in any case, I also did not like any of the boys in the boys' cabin, like the boys our age, um, which I think they thought was um, a little strange and, you know, suspect in whichever, like, possibly homophobic way people might have phrased it in you know, 1800 when this was all happening. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I did have a crush <laughs> at camp and it was Don Garth from Wayne's World. And I don't see it now. I'm going to say I really don't. Um, I, I don't have a crush on Dana Carvey, the actor. Um, and I don't believe I ever did. Oh, I do. But only when he's dressed as the church lady. Well, that's reasonable. That's, <laughs> that's that I can find. Fair enough. But uh, transgressive, you know, gender and age bending and <laughs> religiosity bending. But where I'm going with this, apart from that, it's just like incredibly silly is, I don't know. I, I think that there's something, especially like when you're very young, that like you're, they're the people you're sort of supposed to have a crush on. And you may be like, and like that's almost its own category. Like I remember having these magazines and cutting the pictures out from the magazines and so forth. And that was like a kind of like aesthetic appreciation of pretty men, but it wasn't necessarily like who I had a crush on. It was Mm -hmm. just some kind of like 
expectation. And I think, yeah, I wonder how much that does shape who people end up finding attractive, but I also wonder how much it doesn't and how much it's just kind of this thing that exists um, independently and perhaps to sell hair plugs. <laughs> so is yeah. to end up looking like Garth from Wayne's World <laughs> is, is every man's goal. <laughs> Well, it's funny, I can actually, um, at least in the question of, of how they select the sexiest man alive, um, a long, long time ago, I worked in public relations. And so I know a little bit about the behind the scenes on that. And it basically, it is more like the sexiest man alive who is willing to tolerate this slightly humiliating display and sit for the cheesiest photo shoots and answer the dumb interview questions because he desperately needs to promote something. That's who is named that particular celebrity each year. That makes sense. Does Prince William have anything to promote or did this just happen like despite himself? Like it doesn't seem like he had to cooperate. No, and in, in fact, I, I would I would guess that he's probably not delighted by the whole thing, um, particularly coming on the heels as it does of uh, his brothers, his full headed, full, fully hairy headed, foolish these days, his, <laughs> his verdantly hairy brother. <laughs> Um, that, that means that he has green hair, doesn't it? I got to stop talking. Um, but anyway, lush, his hairy, he, hairy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I might be delirious. Oh my God. That's so good. It just reminds me of, um, I don't, well, maybe this isn't going to make any sense to you. I don't know if you've seen the Harry Potter series, but, um, you know, there's this, there's this famous line in it where um, Hagrid goes, you're a wizard, Harry. And at some point, somebody close to me, <laughs> right after that line, <laughs> turned to the assembled folks watching and went, you're a Harry wizard. And we just kind of lost it. And I've never forgotten it. Anyway, um, I'm not familiar with this, but I, anything about <laughs> Harry and Harry, I'm, I'm game. Yeah, that's true. Right. So he's like, he's doing badly, maybe PR wise, but not in a way that being associated with either sexy baldness or for that matter, hair plugs. Yeah, would it's be... just like a little bit of insult on top of injury. And yeah, apparently this study would have been commissioned. I, I mean, I guess, or, you know, it was like a PR stunt designed to make people want hair plugs. So I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. really know. I think maybe is it, maybe is the issue perhaps that if you, um, think that the only way you can be a sexy bald man is to be a prince, then what's the hope for a bald man who is not a prince? Okay, that is that is one possibility. The other is that, like, if he's the sexiest bald man, that's the best that it gets if you're bald. So clearly you need hair. Yeah. I mean, that's got to <laughs> be it. I think that's the only... I think could, that's the only way. Could could be yours too. We'll never know. And you know, I kind of delight in the mystery. I don't want to know. No. No. I mean, it's just it's one of those things. But yeah, I'm glad you wrote about it and it's it's a fun one. Um so speaking of hairiness, I don't know if you want to move on to another segment, but Oh yes. Are, are we talking are wolves hairy or <laughs> wolves hairy? Wolf. How about that for a terrible 
segue. Wow, that was that was actually that was actually so terrible that I did not pick up on what the hell was going <laughs> on until until I thought that we because I I knew we were talking about the whole beauty myth thing, but I thought you were going to talk about like the opening chapter where you know she talks about how um, she well, body hair and such that yeah. would make much more sense. The problem is, yeah. so I I know from my own blogs archives that when I read this book was in 2013 which felt very late to read it. Like I'd heard about it for years and I felt like I was very, very, not just late, like, cause it was published ages ago, but I mean, like I felt personally very late to the book, but, and like, by the time I actually got to reading it, I remember thinking like that there were all these thoughts that I had had and I didn't realize like that they're literally already in this book that's really famous. And, um, but the reason I want to talk about uh, Naomi Wolf, who also has a, a nice full main she does did she did she have like did she have facial hair did she write about that in the book or am i misremembering i don't remember so maybe she has the full head of hair because she was just like hairy all over um so Mm. she she started like really extra and now she has just a normal amount oh well that could be um (laughs) but so there's this piece in slate that was shared favorably on my twitter timeline by people and i was like you know, a little skeptical because, you know, whatever, that's how, you know what you're getting with feminine chaos. So, um, but I, I clicked, I read, and I am more skeptical still having read it. So it's by Rebecca Onion and it's called, um, a modern feminist classic changed my life. Was it actually garbage? Rereading Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth 30 Years Later. This is illustrated with a juxtaposition of a picture of the author Naomi Wolf with a a photo of her book cover for the beauty myth and then three of her recent tweets um and it's like okay so Naomi Wolf is a bit of a crank these days I think that is fair to say she has um views about the pandemic that are maybe a little bit pushing the edge of things. She also wrote very famously some book about, I guess, oh, it was gay men in Britain and like historically, I don't remember exactly what time period. I actually, I actually remember a lot about this, um, surprisingly, from from when it happened. So do you want me to just kind of jump in sure, here? Sure, sure. Okay. I, I, that's all I remember about it. Yeah. So she had written this book, um, at least part of the focus was like historical legal trials for sodomy or homosexuality or some combination of the two. And she thought she had uncovered this like mass cover up of, you know, these enormous number of, of executions, men who were basically mm-hmm. executed for, for having relationships with other men. What happened? happened was um as i understand it there it was the practice at the time to register a death sentence but then to not carry it out so it was like they would write death recorded as like, you know, either that it was registered as like an option or it was like a death sentence in name only. It seems a little weird, but I mean, this was a long time ago. And at that time, they, you know, didn't know what a germ was and thought writing on trains caused insanity. So who knows? Um, But she concluded, having read this, that all these men had been executed. They hadn't been. And the, the thing that's important about this is that she apparently didn't fact check 
any of this before it went to publication. And so she learned about this error live on the radio in an interview with somebody who did know what they were talking about. And I mean, very polite British man was like, I regret to inform you. (laughs) Um, And then what was I think also kind of wild about this is that she she kind of doubled down she or or at least was not appropriately chagrined she was like oh well la di da <laughs> but it was a very upsetting and like cringe inducing moment for anybody who um, I would say especially who writes anything sort of in that general like nonfiction to academia kind of area because I think the idea that you would go on the radio. And the entire point of your project that you've been working so hard on was debunked is like the ultimate humiliation. So I think there was a certain amount of sympathy with her at first, but also there was this like, how would you not like hang your head in shame if this, you know what I mean? Like, how would you just kind of roll with it? Which I think gets to kind of actually our uh, topic here with her, because basically the thing that seems consistent about uh, Naomi Wolf over the years if indeed there's anything, is this kind of like extreme confidence in her convictions. And I was thinking about this a lot just in terms of um, like what this is comparable to. And I think it's not so different from a writer. Um, and this is a writer whose writing I like, uh, somebody like Freddie DeBoer, who just like writes with just this extreme conviction. And that's a type of writing that just can be really compelling um, and, you know, can go in good or bad directions. But the point is that like, it's just a type of writing that not everybody does. And certainly people who are trying to write anything either academic or just sort of like deeply factual, it can be a more awkward style because, you know, you have to have all these like caveats and nuances and things like that, which if you're writing, for example, the beauty myth, maybe um, wouldn't really fit. So basically what the point of this article is, um, this article in Slate by Rebecca Onion is that um, the beauty myth like it really, it showed her all the stuff about beauty standards and women and feminism and all of this um, as an adolescent. I'm just going to read a passage from this. The book traveled with me from camp to school to home, sitting on the shelf of every room I inhabited between the ages of 15 and 21. Okay. Now watching as Wolf uses her platform to happily elevate every lockdown skeptic and anti-vaxxer with a substack, I wondered whether this formative text ever had any value at all or if Wolf had been misguided all along and I was just too young to know it. Okay, so that's the premise here. So I first want to just kind of question this premise. Like somebody has turned out to be, you know, disappointing. Everything they ever did is to be put in the garbage, right? So that's one issue. Is that sort of part of the premise, right? I mean, I looked again, like at my own, 2013 blog posts about this from when I read it and the problems with this book in terms of like uh, like the flaws I should say whatever the flaws are pretty obvious even if you're not reading it like she's saying sort of like she has some points about like reading something um, in 2021 something about race from the book where she writes um, this is Onion writes um, reading that thought 2021 me breathed a deeply felt yikes like as if there's something very like special in 2021 about being able to look at something critically no i mean in the beauty myth there are simply like there's like this big error in terms of the number of um women who've had eating disorders there's some like big statistical error that's been written about a ton 
and not just in the last five minutes. And there's also like this blind spot about race, which is just kind of like, and not in the sense of like, she doesn't do a disclaimer or a privilege disclaimer. Like there are just things she talks about a lot about all the things women have to do um, to look sort of socially acceptable or whatever, but doesn't talk about hair, which is kind of, especially in terms of black women, a sort of a big gap. Um, and also just talking about the beauty industry and money in the beauty, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just kind of a, a big gap there. But then this whole thing about putting it in the garbage um, just keeps coming up for me because... Does she actually put the book in the garbage at the end? She lights it on fire. No, she does not put the book in the garbage. Um, she So her other... So she has like this bigger issue, which is that like, it's not like, it's not spelled out in this polemic, which is true. It's not spelled out exactly um, what's holding women to the standard, um, which fine like I don't know that that seems like that's just the type of book it is um but so she ends uh Onion ends a piece in Slate with um by some historical accident I'll always owe the beauty myth a large part of my own feminist identity but it's not a fairy tale I'll be handing to my own daughter so that's how she ends it so she's not putting it in the garbage but she's basically saying like it should go in the garbage huh you know I wonder I'm sort of of two minds about this like I think obviously like the question of is this you know is everything that was good now bad because the person who made it is you know 40 years later turned out to be disappointing in some way um that just seems very silly and, and sort of easily dismissed as an it argument should be easily dismissed but there's this slate yeah. article that makes exactly well anyway go on go on Yes. Well, you know, Slate can do what it wants. Um, but, <laughs> but I also think that like, I don't know, I, I can understand deciding that, you know, the beauty myth was useful of an era in a moment, but that when it comes to the things you're going to direct your own child toward, maybe it's not what you found most formative when you were her age. And that, you know, there may be any number of reasons for doing that. So I don't find the ultimate conclusion to necessarily be all that problematic or, you know, or even thoughtless. Um, But I do agree that there's this odd sort of, discomfort with any sort of ambiguity um and it's not just it's not just separating the art from the artist or you know i mean in the case of in the case of wolf i suppose it's different because you know these are her ideas but even then to just you know separate the person writing 30 40 years ago um from the person making the bad tweets now you know yes you know ostensibly it's the same person they inhabit the same body but the you know nobody is exactly the same um at you know age 70 as they were at 30 or mm-hmm. whatever and and I don't or at least I, I mean I wouldn't find it so difficult to just say you know this person's ideas that they wrote at that point were compelling to me at this moment in my life and you know neither one of us is in the same place anymore so you know, it's, there's no reason to have to like recast something that was meaningful to you just to meet, I don't even know, like an arbitrary, very present, very amnesiac standard Mm -hmm. of, you know, what constitutes goodness. Yeah. I mean, I think so for both of those pieces, like, I think 
Right. I think we're in agreement, even if Slate is necessary, is not necessarily in agreement that it could be that somebody is being ridiculous these days and still wrote something of value many years before. And that shouldn't be complicated to wrap your head around. And I think, yeah, like, so the premise of this article was going back with this intentionally biased lens to the book, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, just open mind, we'll see what we find here. It was like, she's turned out to be discredited as a person, as a thinker, let's go back. So that I think is already like kind of an issue. The specific thing about giving it to your daughter or not? Yeah, well, am I going to give my daughter the beauty myth specifically? I don't know. Like, whatever. I don't. Haven't I was you not, already given her? A copy? Well, you know, we read it every night, but I mean, like, <laughs> I, I don't remember ever having been handed it by anybody. I think I probably like found it either at a library or used bookstore. You know, like, I don't think this was anything. Um, I'm guessing library because I don't think I own it. But um, in any case, it's it's not that I think that that's equivalent to like censorship or something like that it's more just like the where this fits in the broader framing of the article of like that actually the book has no value and that's what i think is kind of interesting this question of well does the book no longer have value and something i'm gonna i would say to that is i think there is this idea these days that that is that beauty standards as a feminist concern specifically as held by you know white relatively thin relatively able-bodied women whatever you know, are kind of nonsense. And I don't really buy that. I think beauty standards continue to be a big issue. They continue to be an issue that impacts different women in different ways and not all to the same extent. But I just don't believe that this is like obsolete. And I think there's something going on um, in kind of like over critiques of feminism that sort of say like, oh, well, that's done. That doesn't matter anymore because now we know that these other things matter. And it's like, no, I think these things can all matter. And I don't really think there's an equivalent book that does this and that just like rants about it in quite the same way. And I think you kind of need to already care about these things for this book to mean anything for you. Like, I don't think that if some woman reaches like 25 and has never had any of these concerns, that there's any point in being like, you have to read the beauty myth. But, you know, these things are still out there. They're out there in different ways with like, social media or like porn or whatever the things are that would not have been the case um, specifically when Wolf was writing, but like beauty standards are still a thing. And like, um, I don't really like something seems unsettling to me about this idea of like, but that's before we knew that the real feminist issues were something else. You know what I mean? And that's not so much in the slate, but I feel like that's in kind of the, the idea that this book is irrelevant comes kind of from that place, like, like, as if that's something that's done when I, I just don't think it is. I mean, my limited knowledge of how it goes for teen girls today is like, that that's not done. Yeah, you know, I definitely think that we're in agreement on this. And, um, oh, God, well, there's two things. I mean, one is that it's not as though there's only like you can only ever read one book about beauty standards. Um, and so it has to be like the one that's, you know, attuned particularly to your generation. Um, and that, you know, if it's not, there's no value in reading something that was like the product of a feminist awakening that took place at a different time or, you know, in, in a different context. I definitely think that the beauty myth still has relevance. I think that a, a young woman reading that book today would find things that resonate with her, not necessarily the same things that resonated with somebody reading it in the 1990s. Um, but 
you know, that doesn't mean that the book is valueless. I think it's va- its value is, you know, malleable and, mm-hmm. and shifting and contextual in all kinds of different ways. There's also this interesting notion of, I don't know, this is going to sound probably kind of facile, but Naomi Wolf made bad tweets about COVID. And so this is what defines her. You know, it's, and we always are trying to sort of define people down towards the worst thing they ever did or like the most negative thing they ever did rather than rounding up to like, well, they did one great thing. And so let's just leave the bar there. Yeah. I think part of it is this idea of like toppling people in positions of authority and kind of like, like as if there's some kind of zero something where you have to get rid of Naomi Wolf so that Mm -hmm. whoever you are, you can have a bigger platform. You know, like, I almost wonder if it's just this sort of competition thing that's entering into it, as if you couldn't just leave her be, even if you're the the her you're leaving be is like from the past, effectively, even though she's still, you know, going around, clearly. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I think I think it is just this idea of like categorizing people as bad now. Um, and like, and yeah, it's then the whole like the lack of forgiveness, right? Like no redeemability. Um Mm-hmm. And would people even be so keen to take her down a peg if she hadn't already suffered that like one humiliating moment a, a year or two ago? No. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like the, the wounded member of the herd and now everyone is going to take them down. Right. I mean, I think it's the anxiety, right? Especially like Naomi Wolf is like this extreme example where it's like such a, such a sort of like media and academia sort of anxiety of like imagine this like nobody wants to be in that situation and I feel like that makes it sort of like it's a nervous pylon you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and also there is the smug thing of like somebody's wrong about the pandemic let's um you know I mean this is like literally like I see on Twitter like if you are like if you want a haircut now a year into it that's already like pretty evil (laughs) to some people on my timeline um so the fact so yeah I think that is like this fits into this general sort of like for somebody to be outright kind of weird about the pandemic and messed up is like a pretty easy target you know for like and not not a wrong one I don't think it's wrong to call out what she's saying now I think the thing I object to is the sort of retroactive thing which um i had connected um just a little bit online with like just stuff that happens with people who are like i never actually liked woody allen you know what i mean and this sort of like Mm -hmm. or like although this i guess would be more analogous to i liked woody allen but then i realized (laughs) that he's bad so actually i've gone back to his movies and they are actually all bad Wow, how lucky that you went back and discovered that they were terrible. Imagine the horror if you'd gone back and discovered they were good. Well, exactly. Then you have to die. Exactly. <laughs> That's ritual suicide for you. Philip Roth or whoever, you know, and it's just like, it's the lack of nuance, but it's also just this sort of, um, yeah, this like retroactive thing that I just, that's the thing that I find frustrating. It's not that I think you have to care about the beauty myth specifically. It's not that I think that it didn't have sort of obvious flaws from the get-go. It's the it's the sort of um, predetermined reading that um, puts me off. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's fair. 
That may be all I have on this. Um, so should we then move on to talk about... <laughs> I can't even think of a good segue. Okay, so we're going to talk about gender reveals. Oh, Kat, I'm going to reveal you my gender. <laughs> what is it? I am a woman. Oh, cool. I'm a tomato. Okay, well, you know what? We're... Which is which is slang for woman. That's good for feminine chaos because you got the feminine, you got the chaos. Um, gender reveals. Okay, so we're going to reveal gender right now. Um so gender reveal parties are, it's like, so I've never been to one. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to reveal that I've never been invited to one. I've never invited somebody to one. I, this is not a thing um, in my world. I'm just imagining an adult, an adult <laughs> invites you to their gender reveal party because in fact, what's being revealed at a gender reveal party for an infant is not gender, but sex. Right, that's, so, that's true. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yes, so it is. And if, yes. if an adult invites you to their home for a party about revealing that, you probably should not attend. Well, unless that's what you, you're aiming for. Unless that's what you're into. <laughs> but um, yeah, so basically um, for reasons that have to do with um, ultrasound technology and so forth, other uh, newish technologies, it's now possible to know if you're having a boy or a girl before you give birth. Now, that does not mean that everybody ends up sticking with the assigned gender at birth. I literally saw somebody um, on social media recently, just in a forum, not somebody I know personally, say something about her newborn, use saying something like pronouns she, her, for now, which, and like in earnest, and I was, I was surprised because I had never seen that before. It's now possible to know the thing you know at birth before birth. It's been possible for for a while. A while, not not for all of human history, but for a while, that's true. Um, yeah, for, it's it's been knowable. the The sex of a baby has been knowable in advance of birth for quite a lot longer than the phenomenon of gender reveal parties have been. A that thing. seems correct. So, gender reveal parties are a sort of variant of a baby shower where the point is to reveal if you're having a boy or a girl. Now, what's interesting about these are, is a couple things. So one is that their rise seems to have gone um, very much like there are these weird two sort of symbiotic tracks going on in the culture where there's on the one hand, this sort of like somewhat upscale, perhaps post-gender, certainly liberal post-gender idea of like, you can't know anything about the baby, baby's gender, you know, before birth and which is like in some respects, just like that. I mean, that's accurate, but like this sort of like sort of this extreme level where like maybe not even using pronouns, although I, I think there's like probably three people in the world who actually do that. But certainly where this comes up a lot um, is with um, toys to some extent, but also just like clothing for children. Like mm -hmm. it's kind of a class marker, I think, at this point to not buy very gendered clothing for your baby um, or young child. There's this notion that like you should be sort of like on in one part of the culture wars, it's like that you should transcend gender, that femininity is okay if expressed by a boy or a child assigned male at birth, but that if a girl likes, you know, girly stuff like tutus and TRs or whatever, that's like something to be stamped out or to be sort of embarrassed about whatever. So that's one part of the culture wars. But then the other part of the culture wars, it's like this extreme sort of gender binary fixation with like, how could you possibly get something for your child from like the wrong section of Old Navy or what, you know, 
and so this is like there didn't used to be such gendered children's clothing to or baby clothing like there is now and also then there's this whole thing with the and I should say I don't think this is all going according to like income lines at all I think it's more sort of cultural regional to some extent just sort of individual it's not like rich people do the gender neutral thing and and working class people don't like I think it's complicated and I could go into why but the point is these things both exist in the culture and seem, yeah, kind of symbiotic. So basically gender reveal parties are this, you know, they're coming from this place of, you know, the binary really matters. It's really important. If you're going to like oversimplify the culture wars, that's kind of where it is. What's actually happening though, is these are baby showers, right? Like these are baby showers. And I think like, it's important not to overstate the divide and people in the sort of uh, progressive side of these things are using gendered pronouns, are speaking in like heteronormative ways about babies and saying like, oh, is that your little boyfriend? Like gender has not been transcended anywhere. And like, the, I think the differences may be being overstated. Um, but tell me. So um, I started reading up about these things a little bit and sort of thinking about this um, just, you know, once I knew we were talking about it. And I think of where I've landed, having having read about the origin of gender reveal parties. Um, apparently, this is per Wikipedia, one of the earliest notable examples is in the 2008 posts of pregnant blogger Jenna Carvunidis, uh, probably mispronouncing that, um, on her Chicago Now blog, High Gloss and Sauce. And she did um, a gender reveal cake, you know, where she cut into it and it was either pink or blue. I don't actually know which. Anyway, the origin of the gender reveal party corresponds exactly to the origin of a sort of present like digital culture where your life's moments have to be also, they have to double as content. Um, And so the point of the gender reveal isn't really about the baby's sex. Um, Like that's the that's just the vehicle. Um, but this idea that it's like an obsession with the baby's sex, I don't think it actually matters at all because the point isn't isn't really to reveal the gender. It's to capture videos and photos of the moment that you, the parent, learned the baby's gender or sex. Um, but it's still it's still about caring about well, that information, no? I mean... Well, oh, hold on. I think that it really... I mean... I don't know. I don't know that they that they care what it is. You know, it's it's more that like it's about getting these hashtag moments out of pregnancy and inventing, you know, these these shareable like sort of performative public moments in a pregnancy um, that you that can double as content, especially because the actual benchmarks of pregnancy, a lot of the significant stuff that happens is too private or too biological. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to share that on your Instagram. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it really doesn't have as much to do with an obsession with the the sex of the child. Um, I think that it's just, you know, that this is, this was a place where you could land, where you could eventually create really extravagant stunts, you know, so this started, this started out on blogs. And then, you know, as people started being influenced by blogger culture, it just bled out into like being a mainstream thing that everybody does. And so when it's, you know, a non-blogger, I have no idea, honestly, if if 
most of the people who are doing this really, really genuinely care mm-hmm. about. Like, you know, are they, do they think of themselves as creating content or are they sort of like mimicking what they've seen on the internet? I don't know. But I think that where this originated was less about, you know, the gender binary or any particular interest in that and more about just trying to find ways to like hashtag your pregnancy. Okay. So I think where we may disagree is like, what does it mean to be obsessed with the sex slash imagined projected whatever gender of your baby? I don't think this is that people are obsessed with a particular result. I don't think that this is about like gender or sex, whatever disappointment, which is its own phenomenon. And that happens independently of culture wars, right? Like there are people who are disappointed to find out they're having a girl or a boy or for whatever complicated reasons it's a thing that's out there in the world it's not something i personally understand but whatever that doesn't matter it's so i don't think that that's what gender reveal is but i think it's this idea of focusing on male versus female as a thing that matters and that this is information that's important now in the world of real people everybody is like, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Like, that's just, you know, sort of like how normal life goes, right? And I think um, even parents who are themselves somewhere on the gender spectrum that's not, you know, particularly binary still tend to like have, you know, a boy or a girl and that's how they say, you know, like, I think this is just kind of how it goes. And I, I think I wouldn't overstate how much anybody doesn't do that. But I think what I've seen in terms of people sort of being put off by gender reveals because people really like from the sort of side of the culture wars that doesn't like this are really really adamant about this being the worst thing ever it's this idea of like foregrounding that information of like make the big thing of it you know Mm -hmm. of like introducing your baby into the world as a boy or a girl in and sort of making that the, the key thing you know and i think that's what people who don't like this are kind of reacting to. I don't think that's necessarily accurate because I think what it is is just like a way of celebrating, you know, a new baby. And I think the idea of like sort of micromanaging exactly how people do this is pretty silly and also a bit hypocritical because as I'm saying, I don't think that there's anybody who's transcending gender really. So it's all a little nonsensical just because you put the baby in like a gray onesie for a while doesn't mean that there like won't be gender roles Mm -hmm. yeah well I mean this idea that oh these people are you know they're too invested and they're imposing and they're allowing like the baby's gender to be sort of the leading information that that precedes them into the world I understand that that's the objection I don't think that's an accurate characterization really of what's happening when somebody decides to have a gender reveal party because, I mean, this idea of like, well, this of this being, quote unquote, the most important information that you have about your baby. I mean, you get virtually no information about your baby before it's born. This is one of the few things that you'll learn and that you can, that's going to be like a, it's going to be positive news to share it. You know, like you do genetic testing and you find out something's terribly wrong with your baby. Like you can share that, but you're not you know, going to have a reveal it, party about it. Yeah, I mean, it has the potential to be really, really sad. Right. So I mean, this is like a, a, a case where the stakes are immensely low. You know, it's like we're celebrating whatever, whatever it is, it's a celebration. And I think that maybe that has a lot to do with it, too. It's just a, another, another chance to, to make content if you're mm-hmm. a blogger, um, to have a party with your friends if you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in agreement on this. Like, I think 
that there's I think that this whole notion of what it means to foreground the gender of a baby or soon to be born baby is kind of a little bit like who cares like the baby's going to be assigned a gender like that's just going to be happening and I don't really truly believe that whether or not the parents did a gender reveal party is going to be the decisive factor if that baby turns out to be you know a gender non-conforming in one way or another um LGBT adult I or you know adolescent or child whatever you know I don't I don't think that's going to really matter and I think it's like one of these things where these sort of cultural trappings get in the way of just kind of like letting like like you know like you've been talking about also like letting people just kind of live you know <laughs> and it's just like there's something about this that just to me seems very snobbish the anti-gender mm-hmm. reveal thing and it's not again like that I think it's necessarily about wealth but just this idea that like some people are doing it right and that's about the gender neutral clothing and like yeah it's annoying like the way just as somebody who like spends a lot of time having to buy you know clothing for a small child like yeah you know it can be just sort of exhausting to even like find it when it's very gendered and all that but whatever like I don't think it's such a big deal but so what the reason this is in the news though is that there was a plane crash as part of a stunt and a gender reveal um, in Mexico. And there have been a number of these instances where because it's this online um, sort of audience, sometimes audience centric phenomenon, um, gender reveal parties have um, led to horrific deaths. (laughs) Well, I think it's funny how like, you know, in some cases, that's arguably like a fair sentence construction. In others, it's like, was it really the gender reveal party that caused the horrific well, deaths? I think or the, was I think, it so that's, incidental? That's the thing. So I guess that what I think is a little, I think we agree, though, that this is silly to like, say, and that's why gender kills, <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah, the gender right. binary is like, is deathly. And it's like, it seems to me more that, yeah, this is like some sort of online stunt culture. Do what you want, gender reveal party or not, but try not to um, crash a plane or explode anything in a dangerous way. Yes. But also, if the plane does crash, um, it, you know, we should, we should probably mention more explicitly that, you know, the, this was apparently a pilot was hired to um, fly in stunt patterns carrying a banner that said it's a girl through the, through the sky mm-hmm. where this party was. I mean, the party wasn't happening in the sky, but above (laughs) above the land where this party was taking place, Um, somewhere in the middle of doing the stunts, the pilot, I guess, lost control and the plane plummeted into the sea and two of the four people on board died. There's not a whole lot of information about who they were. Um, But, you know, the idea that the gender reveal party is sort of like the inciting incident um, rather than the pilot who crashed the plane, unless the idea is that the pilot was like so ashamed to be part of this incredibly basic social ritual that he just didn't want to live anymore. Well, I mean, I think what I would say about this, though, what I would say about this just quickly is there is one element of it where I think it is relevant that it's a gender reveal party, which is like that people have I've seen bringing up online is like, imagine being the child. And that's your origin story that somebody died at your gender reveal. Okay, I think we can both agree that would be bad. Uh, Is that it? All right. All right. Well, uh, this has been feminine chaos. Yes. Yes, it has. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider joining us on Patreon. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash feminine chaos. For $5 a month, you'll get access to at least two subscriber exclusive episodes per month, as well as a back catalog of all of our previous subscriber exclusive content. Hope to see you there. And thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.